Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Adam Brotman, the CEO of Brightloom. Adam, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Good to be here. Thanks, Eric. Well, I am... Born and raised in Seattle and started in the digital realm back in 1998, roughly, when I co-founded a company called Play Network, which is a digital media company servicing restaurants and retailers with in-store music and video that we we were one of the first to digitize music and, and media and put it into Starbucks and other restaurants and other retailers. And then I, I ended up in my career, having a chance to work for Bill Gates for a minute at a company he owns separately from Microsoft called Corbis. And then I, I ended up at Starbucks in 2009 as the head of digital. And I was the, I became the chief digital officer at Starbucks. And our team was the team that led the, the construction, if you will, of what Starbucks today calls their digital flywheel. And that most people think of that as the app and the loyalty program that has payment and ordering and personalized messaging on it. After Starbucks, being at Starbucks for almost nine years, uh, or actually a little over nine years, I ended up going to New York and I was the president and chief experience officer and even the co-CEO of J. Crew. was there for a stint and then uh, came back uh, to the West Coast and took over as CEO of Brightland. And I'm happy to tell you about Brightloom, too. I'm excited about what we're working on. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll definitely jump into that a little bit. We'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the earlier experiences. But first, maybe you can start us off by telling us how you got into tech and and digital tech in particular to start with. Sure. I, you know, I was 20. I'm really going back in the way back here. But I was when I was 27, I was a lawyer and I had been was practicing corporate law as a junior lawyer at a big firm in Seattle. And I was introduced to a potential client who introduced me to the idea of MP3 files and relational databases. And he said, if you put these two things together, you can do amazing things in the music space. Now, if you think about that for a second, I should, I should have been smart enough to realize that he was talking about a future Spotify, but instead coming from a, I come from a family of retailers, multiple generations of retailers. So my first thought was, oh my God, we can disrupt Muzak and all the players in that space. So what we did is we built a commercial grade and I quit my law practice. I got so excited. I wrote a business plan. I quit my law practice and we built a commercial grade MP3 player and iTunes, if you will. It wasn't iTunes. This was before iTunes. This was 1997. But we built a relational database to metadata tag music, connected it to a commercial grade MP3 player and started selling restaurants and retail stores on the idea that they didn't have to use these crazy big cassette players and all these non-digital solutions. And we were really the first digital solution in that space. And, and we grew, I did that for about nine years and we grew to almost 50 million in sales and 5 million in profit kind of run rate. By the time I decided I wanted to go do something different and wanted to get into consumer digital products, but that's how I got the bug in digital was just being introduced to that concept. And it's pretty awesome. I mean, when you think about how early that was too, right? Pre-iTunes, pre-Spotify, that industry has definitely, you know, changed a lot. 
I'm thinking back to the Napster days, et cetera. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, well, that's right. I mean, it's funny you should say Napster because I've, I've been studying blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies and particularly Bitcoin. And as I'm learning more about that area, of course, I just think back to Napster and it was, you know, Napster was, uh, you know, the original decentralized peer-to-peer, you know, client software, if you will. And, but I, you know, we were pre-Napster even. I remember when Napster, mp3.com, of course, iTunes, and then the streaming services came up. And that was all after we had started Play Networks. So I, I got kind of a front row seat to it all. Yeah. I mean, definitely exciting times, right? And I remember just all like, how much angst there was is probably a good word on, on the industry record label you know, side of things, trying to figure out how to protect their core business in this new digital world. Yeah, you know, it's funny now, if you think about it now, to your point, I mean, they were right to be anxious in the sense that the change was coming and they, there was nothing they could do to stop it. I mean, look at it today. I, basically, everything is streamed. I, I can't, I mean, I don't think anybody uses a CD player anymore. So like... I got to imagine it's all based off of like a royalty schema and whatever around streaming. And I haven't checked in lately to see how the record industry is doing. I assume they're doing fine. I haven't read that there are any problems. So they must have found a way to navigate through it. But they were pretty worried about that because you talk about disruptive change in digital. They were one of the first to see it coming. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I do think they've, they've come out of it in, in, in decent shape. You know, you, you talked about the, the Gates company, Corbis. You know, tell me about your time there, because now we're talking about digitization of art, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun in the sense that it was digital music, which is kind of a digitization of art, to digital photography or digital images, which is really photography. I mean, Corbis, when I was there, it was a B2B digital image e-commerce company. So what was and it competed against Getty Images primarily. Uh, Bill Gates owned it 100% himself. He funded it originally because he purchased some amazing photographic historical collections uh, like the Bettman archives and then found himself licensing out these images to magazine publishers, book publishers, and creatives and built a, a real company out of it. So I I had come from this sort of entrepreneurial B2B digital music company. And so it was not a huge stretch to go to a, a, a digital image B2B company. What was different about Corbis and what was really new and, and helpful to me in my career journey was that number one, the CIO they hired at the same time they hired me is a guy named Stephen Gillette, who I became very close friends with, still am today. Brilliant guy, younger than me. And at the time I was always kind of the youngest or uh, one of the youngest executives wherever I was. And then here comes this guy who was younger than me, he came from Silicon Valley, brilliant technologist and business person. And he was a CIO and he and I hit it off. And I'd say, I, I learned a ton from him. I learned a ton about e-commerce and a lot of behaviors at Corbis that were consumer-like, even though they weren't, it wasn't a B2C company, it was a B2B company, but it was like a B2C company in that as a publisher or a creative or an, ed an editor, if you wanted to find an image and license it to use in your story or your advertisement, you would go search on Corbis.com and you would look for the image you wanted to license to use. And then you would buy the license. You don't buy the photograph, you'd buy the license and download the photograph. So it was a 
searchable e-commerce platform, you know, like an Amazon or like any other e-commerce platform today. But it was for digital images. And instead of buying the images, you would buy the rights and then you would download them. So it had a lot of consumer-like feelings. And, and I was there for about three years. And, and I'd say that's really where I cut my teeth on ideas around user-centered design as a product person. I guess you'd say it's where I cut my teeth as a product person, first of all. And I was lucky. I had great, as always, I had great product people that worked at Corbis and they taught me what they were doing. I mean, I was just this entrepreneur type guy that like came in and had ideas of around innovation and leadership and product vision, but I didn't really understand how to build a product. So between Steven Gillette on the technology side and my own product team that taught me, you know, UCD and the idea of, you know, really putting yourself in the shoes of the customer, that's where I kind of learned that. And, and then Stephen Gillette went from Corbis to Starbucks and became the CIO of Starbucks after Corbis. And that's how I ended up at Starbucks is that Stephen Gillette recruited me in along with Howard Schultz, who had just come back as CEO. And I was lucky enough to come back in, come into Starbucks, I should say. I say back in because Starbucks was one of my customers at the original company Play Network that we were talking about a second ago on the music side. So I came back full circle in a weird way back to Starbucks, but now as an employee or as an executive, as opposed to as a vendor. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll jump to Starbucks in a minute, but talk to me about Brightloom now, what you're doing there, what you're solving, you know, what the big challenges are, what got you excited about Brightloom? Yeah. What got me excited about Brightloom was the idea that there is a huge opportunity You could call it a problem to solve, but it's actually an opportunity around data in consumer brands right now, which is that they're consumer brands. And I mean, when I say consumer brands, I'm mostly talking about direct-to-consumer brands like retail chains, restaurant chains, and direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. They are seeing the highest digitization rate of their consumer or their customer engagement they've ever seen. Number of transactions, participation in loyalty programs, and mobile and web platforms. And that means there's all this great data they have on their own customers. And yet it's really hard for those brands to use that data. Unlike things like mobile ordering, a mobile app, a website, a loyalty program, just general digital marketing. These are all things that today over time have become table stakes. They've become somewhat commoditized even. Uh, You can find great companies that can help you with your online ordering capabilities, your loyalty capabilities can help you build a website, a mobile app. But if you're looking for somebody to help you with your how you can convert your data into uh, actionable intelligence, actionable CRM or you know first party marketing, that is really, really hard. It's it requires data engineers and data science and a level of digital strategy and digital product expertise that 99% of consumer brands don't have, and they had nowhere to go. And so what got me excited about Brightloom was recognizing that in 2019, when I joined the company, that was a the biggest, most exciting opportunity in digital was how do you help brands use their data to do a better job of engaging with their customers and driving with their business in a personalized way. And I was at J. Crew, and we were trying to tackle the same issue at J. Crew back in 2018 and early 2019. And I was given this opportunity to basically join a company. It used to Brightloom that had actually been around for a few years and, and it had pivoted a few times. And Starbucks and a couple of venture firms, particularly Valor Equity out of Chicago, they got together and there was this portfolio company of Valor's called Itza that had pivoted a few times. And 
Starbucks and Itza had gotten together and said, let's rewrite our business plan and let's do something to productize some of the things that Starbucks had made successful. And I'll, I'll come back to my Starbucks time with you in a second. But when I realized that there was an opportunity to write a new business plan for this Itza company and do something that using some of the playbook that Starbucks had developed and my team and I had worked on at Starbucks, I immediately thought of, wow, there's this huge opportunity and how do you help businesses use their own data to do amazing things in terms of personalized marketing and personalized experiences. And so I just jumped at the chance to take the helm of Itza. We renamed it Brightloom. We raised some money and we hired a team and started building what you have today, which is a platform that we've launched just a few months ago. So we've been working on it for the last year. We launched it a few months ago. We already have 25 brands using our platform, seeing great results, using their data to drive personalized marketing. And so we're, you know, it's been about a year and a half that I've been there. It's been about, you know, four or five months that we've been open for business, so to speak. And so far, it really feels like the opportunity that I was excited about is coming true. Awesome. So you started to talk about it, you know, your time at Starbucks, what you learned there. So take me through that. Sure. That was, you know, just to kind of connect with what I just said, and I'll go to Starbucks. When I was at, at J. Crew, we were trying to figure out how to use the data we had on our customers, our e-commerce customers primarily. And, and then we launched a loyalty program. So now we had e-commerce customers that used a website. We had a loyalty program that they could log into. We had a lot of data on these customers, obviously, because they were purchasing directly from us. They were using our loyalty program. One big initiative we had was a personalization initiative. How do we use that data to personalize our messages to our customers? And this is instead of doing one size fits all messaging, meaning like just hitting all your customers with the same message every time, which is pretty typical, by the way. In fact, if you don't know how to use your data or you don't have an ability to use your data, that's what you're going to do is you're just going to do batch and blast, they called it. Or, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I still get a lot of advertisements from uh, retailers for women's clothes. Now, I've never bought women's clothes, maybe for yeah. my wife like three or four years ago, but I still get women's clothes, like primarily from some of the retailers. I get advertisements about sales. I click through. It's like women's clothes. Yeah, that's so you're talking about like you're getting not even gender segmented. And so the, the sure. idea is that in a perfect world, you'd have like an exact, which is what Brightloom powers, like an exact product recommendation, not just knowing what you know gender you are or whatever, or whatever your you know general preferences are. Like we're talking about based on your transaction history, we can segment customers down to a product recommendation and a right-sized offer based on their spend levels. But most companies, they barely have gender segmentation or basic spend level segmentation, like their laps customers versus their best customers. What we had discovered at J. Crew was, okay, if you wanted to use transaction history data that you have on your digitized customers in order to drive more personalized segmentation for, so you can have high performance CRM, if you want to do that, you need data scientists, you need data engineers, and you need a game plan that you know we we started working on when we were J. Crew. And and the reason I was tuned into that was because of my time at Starbucks. So now to answer your question about Starbucks, at Starbucks, we had four major pillars of activities that we worked on. To this day, they Starbucks refers to those four pillars as the pillars of their digital flywheel, which are digital ordering or digital payment or mobile payment, loyalty, and personalization. So the one I just mentioned in terms of using your data is personalization. The others at Starbucks are ones that we built 
as part of the platform. And so I was tuned into this because of the fact that we had worked on all four at Starbucks. They all worked hand in glove or connected together in an ecosystem or flywheel format. But like I said, that when we started at Starbucks working on this in 2009, the other pillars of the platform were not commoditized yet. They were not commonplace. They were very, we were very early in terms of pioneering a mobile app that was connected to our loyalty program that allowed you to pay on it and then allowed you to order on it. That was, so those were, we were early at Starbucks to do those things. But by the time 2019 rolled around, I feel like those things have become somewhat commoditized and Starbucks is a leader in those areas now. And so, but let's go back to how that happened at Starbucks. So when we, I got to Starbucks in the very beginning of 2009, after being at Corbis, joined Stephen Gillette, who I had worked with at Corbis. He was now the CIO. And Stephen and I got to work on, all right, let's develop a digital strategy for Starbucks. And I was just a vice president. I was an individual contributor, vice president of digital. And I was there. I, there was no product team. There was a tech team. They had a website. Uh, they had a gift card platform. So you could, you remember the old, and it's still to this day, it's one of the most successful plastic gift card programs. So there was a gift card program. There was a website, there was a Twitter feed and a Facebook page. And we were like, all right, well, what should our digital strategy be? So we, we focused on a couple of things early on. One of the things we did is we, we actually turned on an e-commerce channel. So as small as that is for Starbucks, even to this day, not including mobile uh, ordering, which is actually a form of an e-commerce channel. Kind of, if you think about mobile ordering today at Starbucks, I think it's like 25% of their sales on, don't hold me to these numbers, but I think they're in the US alone, they probably are, uh, you know, close to a $15 billion business or something like that. And I think it's like 25% of their sales. So if you think about it, it's a several billion dollar buy online, pick up in store e-commerce business that now runs through their mobile ecosystem. But at the time we got there at Starbucks in 2009, not only did we not have a mobile app, but we didn't really have an e-commerce channel. And that for selling things like instant coffee and K-cups and ground and, and, and whole bean coffee that you could buy and have shipped to your house. So we started out by saying, look, let's get the basics down. Let's get our e-commerce channel lined up. Let's get free Wi-Fi in our stores. Like we didn't have free Wi-Fi at the time at, in, our, in our cafes. You had to sign up for an AT&T service and pay and all this other stuff. So we said, look, what's the, where's the low-hanging fruit? And we went after that. And then we, over the next you know, nine years, we built uh, a number of initiatives to drive, you know, started with a mobile app. We connected a mobile app to, we launched a loyalty program. We connected the mobile app to the loyalty program. We connected the mobile app to the Starbucks card so you could pay using your mobile app. We became the leading mobile payment retailer in the country. In fact, I think until recently, Starbucks had more daily mobile payment transactions than Apple Pay. I think Apple Pay took over Starbucks recently, but it, for you know almost a decade, Starbucks had a lead in that area, which is amazing. And so you had this like huge usage of the app mobile payment feature, loyalty program. And then in 2014 and 2015, we rolled out mobile ordering, which I just mentioned is now, you know, a multi, multi-billion dollar mobile commerce initiative, if you think about it. And it became incredibly important to the company during the pandemic, from what I read. I wasn't there during the pandemic, but you can just look at the numbers and see how important it was. And then on top of all that, we launched personalization. So all of those things, mobile payment, mobile ordering, and loyalty were producing a tremendous amount of data. And we, we had a team that figured out how to use that data 
and create, you know, segments, if you will, and then eventually created you know, super personalized messaging, product recommendations and offers in the form of bonus star offers. And it's been really successful. All of those things have been successful. Yeah, take, well, well, first, I, I must say, I've always loved mobile ordering on Starbucks because I would be one of the people that I would just, I'd walk into a Starbucks, I'd find a seat, and then I would order. And I wouldn't worry about waiting yeah. a line out of my, you know, it just worked out great, even when I didn't order in advance. It was a much better experience and always a better experience. It was awesome. Uh, still is awesome. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the flywheel. Can you talk about how that flywheel worked, like the benefits of those different components and how they built on each other? Yeah, absolutely. So. It's interesting that we started using the term flywheel when I was at a dinner with our CEO at the time, Howard Schultz, and I was explaining to him, he actually came up with the term, at least as far as in in the context of us, what we were doing. And, and that's how we started to adopt it is at that dinner. He, I was explaining to him, you know, I was telling him, you know, it's amazing how the fact that we've connected these both programs and digital products together is creating this internal momentum. And what I was explaining to him was we have the mobile app itself has a number of features to it that are key. One is it has a convenience feature or two. It has this mobile payment convenience feature, which means you don't need to remember your wallet uh, or your credit card or even your plastic Starbucks card because it's all digitized and it has auto reload and payment on file. So it's just like magic in terms of payment. I said, in terms of rewards and the earning of rewards and tracking where you are with your stars and your rewards, it couldn't be easier. And customers love that. And they just live for their gold level and their, their free reward and they can track their points in, in the form of stars. And that was like, there was like game mechanic psychology. And I was explaining that. And I said, there's also now that we've added ordering, they absolutely love the convenience of ordering. And then all of this data is allowing us to have whatever message, marketing message we want to tailor to them is showing up right on the home screen and they don't have to like get bothered because they're looking at their home screen anyways, almost every day when they're using their Starbucks app. So this is really great personalization marketing and they're all happening together. But some people love, I told telling Howard, some people love one feature over the other. Some people really love the ordering or they really love the payment or they really love the loyalty program. And some people like them all, but some people like one's more than the other, but if you wanted to take advantage of one, you had to take advantage of all of them. You couldn't just do mobile payment without downloading the mobile app and joining the loyalty programs. You couldn't just join the loyalty program and not, no, you wouldn't join the loyalty program, I should say, and not also use the mobile app to track it and to scan and to sort of take advantage of your offers. And I was pointing out that we connected these things by design to have a, a more fluid customer experience, to have it be a more seamless and frictionless customer experience. But by doing so, we created this flywheel effect where we're creating internal momentum. Because if you want to use one feature, you had to use the other feature. But because you were using the other feature that was connected by design, you would notice that feature and start using that automatically. And so these the numbers and the momentum and the traction and the engagement was building upon itself. And then Howard goes, oh, it's like a flywheel. Like it's creating its own internal momentum and you don't have to work as hard to, to get every customer to use every feature. And I was like, yeah, it's a great word. We're, we're creating our own digital flywheel. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, this stuff even to this day that Starbucks has done is definitely you know, impressive. And as a 
standalone digital entity would be extremely valuable outside of the whole coffee part of it, right? Yeah, that's true. Although there's no question about that. And, you know, Starbucks has done a nice job over the years of recognizing that and has created some really cool partnerships with Google and Spotify and Apple and even you know, Lyft, the Lyft rideshare company, as well as even Chase, JP Morgan Chase with the Starbucks Visa card and some other things. So, you know, the, the fact that it's, there's such a dedicated, large base of customers that use the digital platform, you know, Starbucks uh, has done a nice job over the years of, you know, leveraging that into other partnerships and other opportunities. Yeah, no, I was even just thinking there's this whole, you know, Starbucks could be a, a square right? Like that whole digital payments processing loyalty program rolled out to, you know, everyone would be extremely powerful, independent of the whole coffee part of their business, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. It, we, we talked about that for many years, even publicly talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We actually did a partner. We actually did a partnership with Square, ironically, and it's not disconnected. Like we, we recognized that at the time and actually did a partnership with Square, ironically. So, now you return to startups, right? What was it like coming from Starbucks and another big retailer, right? Where you were co-CEO, now back to a startup. What made you do that? And what was the transition like? You know, it's been a lot of fun. First of all, I, having done the Play Network startup that I mentioned earlier for the first nine years of my business career after being a lawyer, I, I knew what I was getting into. I mean, you got to remember, being a startup CEO at 27 years old to 36 years old, you know, it's a very formative experience as you can imagine. So I always thought of myself as being an entrepreneur anywhere I went. In some senses at Starbucks, I would talk about being an intrapreneur. Even at J. Crew, the idea is, you know, my favorite thing to do as a leader and as a business leader in general is to build things and to envision things and to get teams passionate about building things. And so in some senses, whether I was at Play Network as a 27-year-old to 36-year-old or at Corbis or at, or at Starbucks, J. Crew, and now back at Brightloom, the one common theme is I love building things. I love being entrepreneurial, regardless of whether I'm C-level at a Fortune 200 company or I'm at a you know, brand new startup. And so I knew what I was getting into for starters. I'd say the thing that's interesting about it is the and, I, and I, the reason I decided to do this is I love the idea of what consumer brands can do digitally. Like I, I got the bug for that big time at Starbucks, and I could talk all day about digital strategy and the digital flywheel. And I absolutely, I'm on the board of a couple of different restaurant chains, and I because I just absolutely I, I could do that all day is just talk about what a brand should do to have a digital relationship with its customers. And that's really what it is for me. It's like, it's all about digital relation. To me, digital strategy, digital product strategy is all about having a digital relationship with your customers and how do you enhance, build that and enhance that and have that drive your business and have it drive your customer relationships. And so for me, the opportunity to come build a company that was actually based on the entire premise of helping other brands build stronger digital relationships with their customers. I mean, that's what I want to do all day. So from a passion perspective, it made sense for me. I've always been kind of an entrepreneur, but you know, I, I'll admit before I took the job, there was a moment where I sat and I thought, 
all right, I'm not a spring chicken or whatever the expression would be anymore. Uh, you know, doing startups is hard. It, it involves a level of stress and anxiety that I knew what I was getting into. And so, but I knew I wanted to do this. So I, I took the leap and, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah, no, it sounds really exciting what you guys are doing at Brightloom. Just, you know, big shifts, right? Going from really large e-commerce to, you know, uh, a company, Brightloom's what, about 60, 100 people on that order? No, I mean, yeah, like 58 people, I think is what we have right yeah. now. Okay, so 60. I was I was right yeah. on the smaller side of that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's exciting times building at a company like that because there's you can move really quickly. There's an ability to have a lot of impact. There's less... Uh, corporate inertia to overcome, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That every, The grass is always greener. Everybody, and me included, you know, when you're at a big company, you, there's a lot of politics and bureaucracy and whatever expression you want to use. And so you sort of look longingly at the startups that can move fast. And at the startup, you look longingly at the big company for all the resources they have and the platforms they have and the fact that you don't have to go to bed every night wondering if there's an existential threat looming over your shoulder. So it goes both ways. But yeah, it's there's no question that there's a thrill about being able to move fast, uh, being able to just decide, hey, you know what, we're missing this feature or we like this customer segment that we you know, didn't originally think we were going to target. And now it makes sense to target. So we're just going to do it. So you don't have to like sit back and have you know, committees full of discussions. It's a, a small, nimble leadership team, a small, nimble company, so to speak. And you get to just uh, go forward. And, and I'll tell you the most rewarding thing about it is, for example, right now we've signed a number of accounts. Just obviously we just launched officially, not, but, you know, less than six months ago. And as I mentioned, we've got a lot of accounts that have already signed up with us and are using us and they're seeing great results. And what's interesting is when you can see that, entire process go from like an idea in your head, so to speak, all the way to software that's being developed and data piping that's being developed by our great team. I mean, I didn't do it. Our team did it. And they put it together and it works and the customer likes it and they use it to run their marketing. And and it works again because they're getting good results. Like that's magic. Like to bring something into the, to, you know, it's like putting a little tiny dent in the universe. If you can do that and you can do it in a sustainable way. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. There's something that is very uh, exciting, isn't the right word, but it's the one that I'm coming to at this moment about creating, about building something and seeing the impact. It, it's like, it gives you that little endorphin brush, so to exactly. speak. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I love more than anything. At Brightloom, the great, the great news is in a weird way, I get to be chief digital officer for a lot of companies, right? Because I mean, I, and, you know, in a way that's sort of the role that we at Brightloom are put in is being like an outsourced digital uh, leadership company, but it's not really what we do. We're Our customer growth platform, we call it our CGP, is actually very specifically a data-driven CRM engine, if you will, for brands to use with their first-party data. But in order to use it and apply it, you have to be doing so in the context of a broader digital strategy from these brands that are our customers. And so it's so fun to be able to, you know, as, as a, I mean, I'm, I'm like an honorary member of our sales team, as you can imagine. And I try and be on almost all the sales calls and as many of the customer calls as I can. And those calls are all about asking the brands, you know, what, what's your digital strategy? Where are you at? What challenges are you having? And 
specifically around data, but we talk, you can't do what we do in a vacuum. You, it, it's always in the shadow or in the context of a broader digital strategy. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, let's dig into some of that. Let's let's talk about mobile and customer loyalty. Like, how do you design and build products that are optimized for mobile and customer loyalty? And then what do you see people that are out there doing that typically doing wrong? You know, I saw that question and I was thinking to myself, like, to me, the the best way to design for mobile and customer loyalty is to just take a step back and remember that there are two things that your customers want from you in a way. First of all, they want to have a better relationship with you. So if you're a customer, and so I'm starting to answer your question by this, put yourself in the shoes of the customer for starters. And that's a cliche thing to say, but what does a customer want from you? Customer wants to have a better relationship with you. They do. I mean, they, it sounds weird to talk. I always talk about customer relationships. Like I talk about human relationships, like, cause it's a human, that's the customer. And they, and while the brand might be an entity, there's a lot of emotions in, in how a customer connects to a brand and they think of a brand a certain way. They think about the way they use their, their brand's products a certain way, the way they interact with that brand. So the, the customer wants to have a great relationship with you. So they want to, they expect that to be reciprocated. And so the second thing a customer then wants is to have convenience and rewards. And what I mean by convenience and rewards is make my relationship with you as a brand frictionless as much as possible. Let me just be dialed in. If I want to log in or get points or order from you in whatever channel is convenient for me, like, let me do that. So that's convenience. Convenience is like, don't put barriers in my way for how I want to order and, and engage with you. And rewards is like, make it rewarding for me. Like literally give me like rewards or discounts or points or surprise and delight me with uh, access or opportunities as a customer that not every customer has. So reward me for putting an effort into you as a brand. So to me, that's how I, I think when you say what mistakes do companies make, it's less about mistakes and more about like the, uh, what I've seen is when companies and brands understand that the customer wants to have a better relationship with them and simply just wants you know, frictionless, convenient, rewarding experiences. And, you know, and I use those words intentionally because when I think about product development, I think about product strategy and digital strategy, everything kind of tends to fit, at least from a a customer engagement perspective, into those themes. So take me a little deeper on the reward side. Like what works there? Well, for starters, there's rewards or loyalty can be either formal or informal. So what I mean by that is, it can be formal. It can actually be a points-driven program where you earn points or earn whatever, and then you level up and you can you get these sort of cash back or a free whatever. Like that is kind of classic rewards in a sense. And it works really well and customers appreciate it, by the way. Um, I mean, look at, you know, Starbucks is a good example of that, but, you know, you can just go down the list. There's a ton of companies that have points and rewards and they do really well. The other form of rewards or loyalty can be, something like an Amazon Prime where I, I actually pay in the form of, you know, $139 a year or whatever it is for Amazon Prime. And I get a combination of, you know, free two-day shipping on a lot of things, or I get free streaming of movies. I'm getting something in return. In that case, you're kind of buying it, but you're always buying it. If you think about it, you're buying it either the form of transactions or visits, or you're just buying it ahead in the case of an Amazon Prime. But to me, they're kind of the same thing. It's like, look, I'm making an investment in you. Give me something back. And then the third area of rewards or loyalty is even less formal than those two examples. And that is 
like just reward me by knowing me, reward me by giving me a great experience. And so what I mean by that, a good example of that is like, let me sign up for, uh, if I'm going to opt in to receive email marketing or, or push notifications from you, at least send me messages that are relevant. Like at least don't send me, like you said, women's clothing, if I never want to buy women's clothing, or don't send me uh, a steak offer if I'm a vegetarian or like, please just kind of act like you know me a little bit. And also surprise and delight me every once in a while, you know, like reward me in the form of let me have some access to something. Give me something else. The average customer doesn't just have because I'm a, I'm a loyal customer. So can you please just, you know, give me a little bit of love back, even if it's not in the form of like cash back or something more formal. Yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, surprise and delight because I, I love those terms as a product person. I like to think about like how we can put more fun into even B2B applications. And, and some of that I think is through surprise and delight. What are some good examples of what you've seen in that area? Like good ways to surprise and delight your customers? Well, you know, a good example is if you're going to offer an email subscriber opportunity to your customers, even if you don't have a loyalty, an official loyalty program, meaning one where you have a discount that, you know, you're offering on a points-based system, the best surprise and delight is going to be some pretty continuous, consistent, I'll call it offers. Offers don't have to just be discounts. They can be like an exclusive item. I noticed Chipotle just announced that they, for their mobile customers, and maybe it's mobile and online and even their loyalty customers, they've offered an, a product that you can only get if you're ordering online, which is the new quesadilla. Now, that's not surprising to light. It's always on. It's a product that's offered for just their digital customers. But that's interesting, right? It's not a formal rewards-based thing. It's like Yeah, a, but it's something that feels exclusive, right? Well, it's like an online-only thing. Mod Pizza, which is a company that I'm on the board of, they did a great job by having these special offers, surprise and delight. Like they'll say, oh, this." they were doing this. And I think they may still be doing it. But they were doing this thing where every so often, maybe once a month, it wasn't announced ahead of time, but they would just say, okay, everyone who's on our mobile app or on our digital platforms can get a this particular special pizza for $5. So to me, those are examples of surprise and delight, especially the, the mod example where it wasn't something that you could count on. It wasn't something that you were you'd earned a certain number of points. So you got this reward. It was like something that was offered to you uh, out of the blue. And so it surprised you and hopefully delighted you. And, and I think, you know, those are good examples. You know, there's a restaurant chain Ruby Tuesdays, which I'm also involved with. They send out pretty continuously send out really cool offers for their customers, but it's not official. It's not like you can count on what the offer is going to be. They get to decide what offers they're going to send, whether it be a buy one, get one offer or a special on delivery or whatever. They'll, they'll sort of send it out and you don't know what's coming until you get it. But the nice thing is because you're a member of either, whether it be the Ruby Tuesdays email list or the mod loyalty program or the Chipotle digital platform, like you're sitting there as a customer and all of a sudden the company just announced like this thing's available to you, or they send you an email and give you this offer. And that's, that's surprise and delight. And that can happen on top of obviously a, for, a more formal loyalty program. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I love the idea of trying to think about, you know, how we can integrate surprise and delight into our products, whether they're consumer oriented or even B2B. And I think the B2B marketers can learn a lot, you know, from 
what some of the larger consumer brands or just some of the more innovative consumer brands are doing. There's there's a lot we can learn or I can learn as, as a B2B product guy, B2B marketer from some of the consumer experiences I see. Yeah, I agree. I started out, like I said, in B2B. And it's funny, I, mean, I think I was always an aspiring B2C product person. So it's kind of fun to bring that passion for that to the B2B world. Because at the end of the day, if you can say business to business, but there's a human being on the other side of that product experience. So it's really not the user-centered design or the human-centered design principles apply in both cases equally well. Yeah. And we, we've seen that with user experience, right? Like if you think of the B2B application experiences, the user experiences from you know 10 years ago or 15 years ago, they were by and large horrible. But then you saw things like the iPhone uh, and people's consumer experiences, you know, affecting what they expected out of their business products. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of different ways, personalization being a great one. You know, the stuff that, you know, some of the examples from Starbucks, some examples from Surprise and Delight, you know, a lot of those is affecting how the human beings that interact with business software, how their expectations are set. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we... Brightloom is a B2B company and we have a platform and it's designed by mostly B2C product designers. So we, most of what we do is happening under the hood, if you think about it, but we have a great designer that works for us, uh, Rebecca. We have, you know, Leanne and Ben on our product team who are, these are all kind of consumer product folks. And uh, when you log in as a brand to the customer growth platform at Brightloom, you see a console, you see how our our data engineering and our data and all of our plumbing, if you will, has produced these segments for you based on your data. But it was important to us that you experience that with a great interface and, and making it easy for you to use. So yeah, I, I'm I agree with you. B2B, the consumerization of B2B products is almost the way to think about it. And you know, if you think about Zoom itself is a B2B product, basically. And I think they just did an incredible job, you know, even years ago thinking about making it easy, seamless, not over-engineering it, making it easy to use. It's, it's funny how Zoom hasn't changed very much in the couple of years that I've been using it. And I just think that's a testament to just great design. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with that, we're the, at the end of part one here with Adam. We're going to be back with part two. We're going to talk more about digital transformation. We're going to talk more about you know how some older enterprises are adopting to the new digital world. Uh, and we're going to dig into customer empathy. So join us for part two of the podcast on product love. <laughs>